Missouri blues are getting me down. Fools escape those dreary 20th century blues. Welcome to the first podcast in a new series, Talking Modernism. I am your host, Michael Hauptmann. In this series, I'm going to discuss different aspects of modernism and help us better understand this fascinating and formative movement, and see if it might even help us better understand some aspects of the world we live in today. In this first episode, I'll try and explain what I understand modernism to be, and I'll do that by talking about a very famous house, the Villa Savoy. Now, if you already know a bit about modernist architecture, you're probably familiar with the Villa Savoy. The Villa Savoy, some pronounce it the Villa Savoy, is a home on the outskirts of Paris built in 1929 by the visionary Swiss architect known as Le Cabousier. And he built it for his well-off clients, Pierre and Eugenie Savoy, who were wealthy from work in the insurance industry. The house is still standing, restored and open to the public, and I was fortunate enough to visit it a few years ago. The house originally stood in open countryside, a weekend retreat, but they've still retained a large patch of flat green lawn that the house stands on, surrounded by trees that block up the surrounding modern world. So visiting it today, you do get a sense of what it must have been like back in the day, standing in splendid isolation. And it was, and is, splendid. Words really don't do it justice, so I've provided a link to a pretty good photo study of the house on this podcast's website. Imagine, though, a white rectangular box built on two levels, with the upper level supported on thin columns. On top of this plain white box on the flat roof is an ornate pavilion with straight and curved walls, arranged to look a little bit like a cubist deconstruction off a dome. It was smaller than I expected, a similar sensation to when you see one of your favourite film actors in the flesh. Inside, the living and dining rooms are uh, combined in an irregular large open plan space. Now, open plan spaces are pretty commonplace today, but these were almost revolutionary back then. Indeed, if you didn't know the history of the whole house, it wouldn't necessarily seem that extraordinary, resembling as it does the tens of thousands of white rectangular box houses that have been built for rich clients in the almost 100 years since the Villa Savoy was first built. But in its simplicity and balanced proportions, visiting the house today, you do get the sense that you are seeing the prototype for the flood of copies it inspired. As well as breaking new ground in style and layout, the Villa Savoy also stood apart in its embrace of technology, pioneering construction methods and use of materials. It was largely built of reinforced concrete, both the frame and the walls. The strength of the structure allowed for long ribbon windows, which featured large panes of glass with minimal framing. It's often hard to separate the story of modernism from the revolution in technology that was occurring at the same time. The 1920s and 30s are sometimes called the machine age, as the world experienced a flood of new machines like typewriters, telephones and aeroplanes that evolved from new invention to mass production at a dizzying rate. Consider, for instance, the progress of the motor car. In 1886, 42 years from when the Villa Savoy was built, 
Carl Benz patented the first motor car. To give you a point of comparison, 42 years ago from today would be roughly when the first IBM PCs came on the market. In 1908, 20 years later, the first Model T Ford was built. In 1918, a mere 30 years from Carl Benz's first invention, 664,000 Model T Fords were built, and they cost $500 US, which is about $10,000 in today's money. But through mass production and assembly line techniques, by 1926, 40 years after Carl Benz and three years prior to when the Villa Savoy was built, 2 million Model T Fords were made, and the cost had dropped from $500 to $364 each, or about you know $4,000 in today's money. Cars were becoming ubiquitous, especially for wealthy people like Pierre and Eugenie Savoy. And the lower level of the Villa Savoy was built with a curve designed to accommodate the turning circle of a car passing underneath the elevated main floor. And for Cabousier, cars, and indeed machines in general, were a fetish. He was the polar opposite of architects and designers from the previous century, like William Morris and Augustus Pugin whose reaction to the Industrial Revolution was to revive manual craftsmanship via the arts and crafts movement. Cabousier published a book in 1923, summarising his radical new theories, and it was called Towards a New Architecture. The book combined pictures of ancient Greek temples alongside photos of modern aeroplanes and ocean liners, as both embodied aspects of design, one aesthetic, the other efficient, that he sought to express in buildings like the Villa Savoy. His ideas were hugely popular. Indeed, towards a new architecture has been widely described the most influential architectural text of the 20th century. Cabousier's ideas, whilst radical, were in tune with the modernist times. The Villa Savoy divided opinion, but it was a rock star building in its day, and it helped make Cabousier the leading architect of his time. The house was the centrepiece of a 1932 exhibition at New York's Museum of Modern Art, which named this new type of architecture with its straight lines, open plan layout, lack of ornamentation, and the use of reinforced concrete, glass and curtain walls as the international style, and it kept that title uh, all the way up uh, through the 1960s. Early critics compared the Villa Savoy to a landmark Renaissance house the Villa Rotunda, built way back in 1595 by the famed architect Palladio, from whom we get the adjective Palladian. Even today, the house inspires eloquent praise, not just from myself. Here's an article from the Architecture Review magazine, written not that long ago in 2012. The Villa Savoy displays a limited range of materials, the same or very similar used inside and out, emphasising continuities of space and behaviour. Imitating the smooth surfaces and forms of ocean liners, which similarly float free from context, these materials conceal the true nature of construction. With its plain surfaces and generous spaces, the house hangs back from its inhabitants in a way that is liberating yet defies intimate engagement with its materiality. Attempting to stand outside of time, the house neither aged nor weathered. It merely cracked and deteriorated. Attempting to stand outside of time, that, in a nutshell, 
was the aspiration of modernism. Modernism is a term we apply to a very broad church of ideas, but innovators like Cabuzio, who today we call modernists, the avant-garde as they were probably called back then, did share a passionate belief. A belief that they were living outside the run of Western history. Western histories with its traditions stretching back to the Middle Ages and the Holy Roman Empires, up through the Victorian Age, perhaps even up through the Edwardian Age, up to the start of the First World War. And one strand of modernism, perhaps the dominant strand, saw this as a time of exhilarating opportunity. They saw this new age had the potential through advances in technology, through a new spiritual awakening in society, or perhaps a combination of the two, to become the dawn of a new utopia, a golden age. Citizens would be housed better than had ever been in houses like the Villa Savoy, informed and entertained better than they'd ever been through new mediums like film and radio. Radio. There's another example of how fast new technologies were changing the world. The first wireless voice transmission was made in 1900. Broadcast radio stations, as we understand them today, first started in the United States in 1920. By 1929, in a country like Australia, for instance, one house in five had a radio and no doubt invited their neighbours in to listen, so many more people had access to a radio. People would enjoy better health through continuing breakthroughs in sanitation and medicine. For centuries, a person's life expectancy had remained unchanged. A British person born in 1770 had an average life expectancy of 35 years. And the data is a bit uh, patchy, but if we go back a couple of hundred years, the life expectancy was probably something similar. By 1870, 100 years later, life expectancy had uh, only increased a scant seven years to 42 years. So 100 to 300 years, life expectancy had gone up by, by seven years. But thanks to rapid advances in sanitation and medicine, especially um, compulsory vaccination, by 1910, 40 years later, life expectancy had shot up to 52, an increase of 10 years. Again, compared to about seven years in the previous 300 years. And by 1930, 20 years later, it increased again to 60 years. They would live more liberated lives, free from the repressions and expectations of traditional society, each person free to realise their potentials and express their individuality. And they could express their individuality through the new movements that were springing up from the revolution in art from the early part of the 20th century. In painting and sculpture, there was cubism, expressionism, and all the several other isms. And there were similar radical movements in literature, theatre, dance, and, and even opera. But the utopian promise of modernism didn't always match reality. The reality of the Villa Savoy, that whilst it was lovely to look at, it was a pain to live in. For a start, the building cost almost twice its budget. It was difficult to heat. A stiff breeze made the skylight howl, and it leaked like a sieve. In 1935, Eugenie wrote, uh, Eugenie Savoy wrote to Cabousier, It's raining in the hall. It's raining on the ramp, and the wall of the garage is absolutely soaked. It's raining in my bathroom, which floods in bad weather, and the water comes through the skylight. The gardener's walls are also wet through. 
The ramp that the unfortunate Madame Savoy refers to leads to the rooftop pavilion. You might wonder why the roof has a rooftop pavilion with its leaking ramp, as it already has a large open courtyard on the first level. But sunbathing was a popular fad in the 1920s, and Eugenie Savoy and indeed Le Cabousier were keen adherents, and they were determined that the Villa Savoy would have lots of places to lie in the open air. And the history of something even as commonplace as sunbathing really helps improve our understanding of modernism in these times. Sunbathing, as in purposely lying in the sun to get a tan, only started in the 1920s. For centuries previous, a suntan was not a sign of privilege and certainly not something that people aspired to have. It was the lowly farm labourer who was tanned, and the well-off, who could afford to spend their days inside, cultivated the pale look, as a study of Western portraits before the 20th century quickly shows. But as industrialisation took hold, Poor people moved out of the countryside into the towns and cities to work in factories and shops. Working inside, they became pale and indeed so sun-deprived that in Europe they developed rickets. It was the well-off now who spent time recreating uh, outdoors who became tanned. The growth in popularity of women's tennis after World War I gave the fashionable world a number of athletic tanned role models, and in particular, uh, the French uh, woman player Suzanne Legrand, who played Wimbledon in 1919 in a sleeveless dress. Apparently Coco Chanel, who appeared in public in the south of France, tanned after a Mediterranean cruise, kicked off sunbathing as a standalone pastime rather than incidental activity in the early 1920s, and it quickly became fashionable throughout high and middle society. Sunbathing was also seen by people to have good health benefits. Swiss sanitariums offered heliotherapy, sunbathing, for conditions like tuberculosis and lupus. And its popularity was kicked along by the discovery in 1918 of the role that sunlight plays in the production of vitamin D uh, in humans. Le Cabousier was slightly obsessed with the supposed health benefits of sunbathing, and he made rooftop gardens one of the five essential features of his architecture. Indeed, he was obsessed with hygiene in general, and part of the inspiration of the design of Villa Savoy with its large windows and clinical white colouring may have been from sanitarium design. Now, of course, attitudes to tanning have changed somewhat, especially in Australia where there's concerns about skin cancer. So tanning salons are banned and we're encouraged instead to slip on a shirt, slop on sunscreen and slap on a hat, according to the jingle that all Australians know by heart. In many aspects of modernism, especially the material ones like buildings and technology, we can see an early version of the world we live in today. Innovations like the the motor car and the open plan living room in the Villa Savoy have persisted through the decades and have become part of contemporary life. But when you look at the attitudes and concerns of people at the time, the phrase, the past is a different country, they do things different there, springs very much to mind. Sunbathing is perhaps the least extreme of these old attitudes, enthusiasms, concerns that seem strange to us today. And I hope to spend a few podcasts in this series exploring them. Because of the leaks and all the other practical problems with the design, Pierre and Eugenie Savoy were in litigation with uh, Cabousier from when the house was completed in 1929 for 10 years up to 1939. 
And why did the lawsuits stop in 1939? It wasn't because the leaks were fixed. It was because Pierre and Eugenie Savoy, both Jewish, had to flee the occupation of France by the Nazis, the Nazis who were yet another monstrous manifestation of modernism. In the middle of the 1800s, most countries in Europe were governed by variations of constitutional monarchies. Even Republican France re-established an emperor in 1852. Politics then underwent radical change, especially through the, the crucible of World War I. Changes, radical changes, just like architecture, industry, and all other aspects of society that modernism touched. Some of the changes led to liberal socialist democracies, like that which uh, is enjoyed in Australia. But some of these innovations led to Soviet communism, Italian fascism, and German Nazism. And you can draw a line between some of those strange attitudes and concerns I, I mentioned earlier and the growth of extremist political thought. Again, it's an area I'd like to explore in future podcasts. So a discussion of the Villa Savoy has allowed us to touch on many aspects of modernism, not just architecture. And I'll be taking a similar approach in future podcasts, using an object or event as a starting point to investigate a particular aspect or, or range of aspects of modernism. At the risk of sounding presumptuous, I'm going to seek to emulate the podcast series Revisionist History by Malcolm Gladwell, one of my favourites. This podcast has its aim to seek to investigate the overlooked and misunderstood. I too will look to explain the overlooked and misunderstood, at least as it relates to modernism. And why do I bother? And why should you, the listener, bother? Modernism, after all, is a movement which despite its up-to-date name, dates back a century or more. Since modernism, we've had postmodernism and perhaps even post-postmodernism. I reckon there's a couple of good, strong reasons why we should bother. First off, modernism is still fascinating history and fascinating style. People love Art Deco. They love The Great Gatsby, that Netflix series Berlin Babylon, and indeed the Villa Savoy. It's certainly a passion of mine, and I look forward to the opportunity to share stories of this fascinating, dramatic, idealistic and tragic movement. I also believe a study of the modernist movement and period can give us useful insights into issues confronting us today. Certainly the modernist period has the types of events and situations that seem familiar to us today. A worldwide pandemic though of Spanish influenza, not COVID-19, a threat to liberal democracies from totalitarian regimes and populist extremist politicians, the emerging threat of war between great powers, an intellectual avant-garde at odds with the mass conventional thinking, though not in this case about climate change. As Mark Twain is opposed to have said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And because the past is indeed past, its events now fixed and static, it's a hell of a lot easier to understand than the constantly evolving events of today. Just one damn thing after another, as a wise person once wrote. I think spending some time reflecting on, a, on the relative certainties of an age not too far removed from our own, but where the consequences of actions and decisions have now been revealed and understood will help us better make sense of our own confused times. 
It's interesting to me that the phrase Art Deco was only popularised or possibly only even invented in the 1960s. Back in the day, people did not have a phrase that captured the design movement of the 1920s and 30s. It relied on later historians to provide a name for the movement. The same way it will be for future historians to provide a definitive name for the period we're living in now. Some things are best understood in retrospect. So that then is my goal for this series. I aim to publish about 10 30-minute podcasts over the next 20 weeks looking at modernism. The next one will be a look at the story of the modern fitted kitchen, the Bauhaus movement, and the fascinating life of pioneering architect, feminist, and communist spy, Greta Schutt-Hotsky. I look forward to speaking to you then.